reading today is from the book of John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. Good morning. So uh, you'll see from the title of this message, it's, this morning it's Advent and the Beauty of God. And it, it comes back to what Barbara's just reading here about it's really stating, I think, one of the great truths of the Bible. Those who believe in him, those who follow after him, he gave the right to become children of God. And I want to primarily focus on that one verse that was just read too. Also, let me put it up here where it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never been able to overcome it. That is that there's a, this statement is saying that there's a continual struggle that happens between light and darkness. And those who want to find light can find it. And those who seek after darkness will also find it. What does it mean for us as children of God during this Advent season to seek after God? And to quote what Paul was quoting when he was quoting the Athenian philosophers, how do we live and, and move and, and have our being? And this passage this morning that, I, that was just read, there are three things I want to pull out from it. Basically from that one verse, I did this up here, but that is this. It talks about the issue. We're going to see here the problem. And we're also going to see here ultimately the solution here. Now let me just deal with the first one here, the problem, the, the, the issue what is the issue? Let me give an illustration of this. So uh, a man goes to a marriage counselor and he tells the marriage counselor, I want to divorce my wife. And the marriage counselor asks, okay, uh, why? And he says to the counselor, I don't love her anymore. And the counselor says back to him, okay, fine. But then what do you love? And he said, I don't follow what you mean. He said, listen, we all love something. So if you're saying you no longer love her, it means you're loving something else. What the Bible would say is, would certainly lift up from this passage here, we've been made by God to love. It's impossible not to love. 
Augustine, I think rightly said 1,600 years ago, we cannot not love. Because we are made in the image of the creator who is love, it stands the reason that we will reflect that. But the more, I think the, the better question and the deeper question and where I wanna kinda go this morning is, um, what is it that we actually love in our world? What is it that you and I actually really turned our crank? What is it, where do we find our longings, our passions, our loves? In the formations of what we worship, I think we're gonna see in here that it's found in all sorts of places that our loves are often formed and shaped by, by, what, we, by what we practice. That's the issue. Now let me bring up here the problem. And let me also say here, my second point will not be as fast as my first one, okay? Um, but what's the problem here? Well, it's this. All of us in here have a longing for God. There's a God-shaped vacuum. Unless he's filling it, something else will fill it. And the reason why is that this has been built in us. It's the distant echo of the Imago Dei, the image of God that God has put in us. That we have this longing, these cravings for something outside of ourselves. The problem is, is that when sin entered into the world, it's warped our longings. Well, we end up longing for things that are maybe are not of God or outside of God or lead us away from God. And we no longer long for the creator, but we go after the created. And I don't know if there's any better passage in the Bible that speaks more to this than in Romans 1, 25. It says up here, they, that is all all people here, they trade it. They trade the truth about God for a lie. And what do they trade here? So they begin to worship and serve the things that were created instead of the creator himself who was worthy of eternal praise. Now I want to underscore that word there, they trade it. What is the Bible saying here? That is, it's very easy, very easy to trade, to exchange to replace a truth about God with something else. It happens all over the place. And very often we will find things that we will begin to worship more than the creator himself. And let me give you an example of this. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, wrote about this. Um, he wrote an article in the summer of 1944, the height of the World War II, and at that time, people were arguing about whether it's amazing. Here we are 80 years later still arguing whether there should be a monarchy or not in England. And Lewis didn't write to argue whether they should have a monarchy or not. What he said is, we can, make, we can reject, we can make fun of monarchy all we want, but the, here's the issue. Even if we get rid of monarchy, we're going to replace it with some other monarchy. And that is, there is something that we want to always look to to rule us, to inspire us, to make decisions for us. And we worship all these other things. And he didn't say this, but I'm saying this. It's hard. It's not too hard to see this. We worship athletes. What was the new contract yesterday? 700 million for 10 years. Okay. We worship coaches. We worship rock stars. We worship movie stars. We worship politicians. We worship billionaires. We, we even worship gangsters, okay? 
I mean, I know some of you know what I'm talking about. I've watched the shows on John Gotti on Netflix, okay? <laughs> right? Am I the only one in here that's seen this? Okay, okay. Maybe I'm the only sinful person in here that's seen this, okay? So, but we reject one form of, mar- a form of monarchy to replace it with something else here. And Lewis is simply asking the question, why is it there's this deep-seated root for us to crown something sociologically, you know, culturally, and emotionally? Why do we have this? And the reason is the simple answer is God made us like this, and yet we have been warped by sin to, to crown something else. In many, often, many cases, it will be a, a man-made monarchy. And the proof of this is in our behavior. Because like Lewis said, is that our, our, our spiritual nature is just like our physical one. And that is, in order for us to survive physically, we have to eat. And if we do not eat, we will gobble up almost anything. It's the same thing spiritually. If we do not get the things of God, from, bread from heaven, we will gobble up poison from somewhere. We're going to serve something, and we can deny it all we want, but God made us like this. And it's, it's, a, it's a memory trace of a collective unconscious that goes back to the beginning of the world, back to when God made us, a, a memory trace of a longing for a perfect king, longing for a perfect king, dependence on a king with glorious splendor, undimmed since the breaking of the world. We, we long for that. We desire that. And therefore, what I'm saying to you, we will spend a lot of time going after that idea, that, that trying to fill that vacuum here. And we're shaped and formed in various ways and, and loves a desire for some sort of kingdom or another. And therefore, I've become absolutely convinced of this. I'm, I'm more believe this now than ever before, that is the religious nature of every single human being alive. Even the militant atheist who says he doesn't believe in religion does believe in religion. They have some form of belief they're looking to to inform how they live and move and have their being. Everybody's religious. And the reason why they don't think they're religious is they think religious is just about a set of beliefs or dogma. And what I now know is that beliefs are so much deeper than this. It's more than just a set of beliefs. It's what we love. It's what we worship. That informs what our religion is. Because religion is not just a belief, is it? It's primarily what we worship. So the question is for me is this morning is, is not um, who is religious, but is where do we find our religion? That, that's the question. And more often than not, we're going to find it in places we didn't even think to look. Places that uh, demand our allegiance, vie for our passions, that aim to capture our hearts. And the ultimate goal is to make us disciples of other kings and citizens of, of other kingdoms outside the outside the city of God. Now, I don't know if anybody I've come across who captures this better. Let me, many times you guys ask me the books I'm reading or I'm listening to, and in the last couple of years I've been kind of telling you about these. I rarely come up with an idea of my own. It's almost every, from everybody else, okay? But there's a book that had a huge impact on me about 15 years ago that I listened to. I'm gonna put it up here. 
by a guy named James K.A. Smith, Jamie Smith. And he wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. Now, he's a professor of philosophy at Calvin University, that incredible school up there in Michigan. And he wrote, it's really, it's one of three books. This is the first one he wrote, Desiring the Kingdom. And he taps into the whole idea of the secular society uh, shapes our thoughts and our affections. And we don't even know it. It happens all around us. And he, and he basically asked the question, where do we get our desires? Where do we get our longings, our loves, our passions? And in brief, he says, and I want to put the, the quote up here. He says, he says, we are what we love. We are what we love. And he takes great time to examine the ways in which various institutions do, in fact, act as what he coined the phrase cultural liturgies. Now, what is a cultural liturgy? Well, he, he defines it in many, many ways this. It's practices that both form and malform our, our hearts. Practices that both perfect and imperfect what we truly believe. Uh, ultimate stories that say who we are and may, more importantly, what we are actually for. And he refers to the way human cultures teach us to worship these cultural liturgies, even if we're not even aware of it. And by the way, he adds here, not all these things are necessarily bad. What happens is we take good things, created things by God, we turn into ultimate things, and they become bad things. But he just gives an awesome, an awesome illustration that has stood with me now for 15 years. He talks about one of these liturgical worship things. What is one of the ones he talks about? Let me put the picture up here. He talks about the liturgy of the mall. The liturgy of the mall. Now, I realize I've got to say that, you know, say that the, the mall is going the way of the dodo bird, is it not? It's just disappearing. But when he wrote this book 15 years ago, malls were kind of still a thing. But he says about the mall, the mall is every bit as religious as anything else we do. It's not some benign and neutral space. It's religious in every sense that it tries to give you a story with a capital S to describe your life and that if you have these things, you will be happier. And by the way, he says about the mall, he said this, this is, it's religious in every way. When you go into the mall, you know they have liturgical colors too during the season. I mean, when you go into the mall at Christmas time, do you have to know it's Christmas time? How do you know? You see it all around you. When it's Valentine's, when it's July 4th, and these other big Halloween, you, you know when you walk in these places. And he said, it's just like a church in many ways. You drive in this incredible parking lot. It's all, all these people are congregating to one place. And you walk into this, down this hall and you see these different chapels in here. And you enter into these chapels. And he says, and let me put the next picture up here. In those chapters, there are three-dimensional icons that embody, if you have these things, it will bring about human flourishing. If I have that, if I wear that, I will look better. I will feel better. People will notice me. And no matter what chapel you enter in here, you don't, he said, you don't have to even know what you're doing here. There are acolytes there in these chapels to kind of escort you around, to show you around, here's what you need and stuff here. And put the next picture up here. That communicate to you, 
if you have these things, your life will be better. Your life will be happier. And he said, and by the way, by the end, find one of these acolytes help you get one of these things. <laughs> this is just great. He says, they will take you to the high altar, the counter. <laughs> right? <coughs> Where there's a high priest behind the counter. And you bring a sacrifice, okay? <laughs> a card, right? It's an offering. We know what offering's about. And they will consummate this offering by running and, and giving it back to you. And in the end, they'll give some kind of benediction like, hey, have a good day, take care, hope to see you again, right? You see what I'm saying? It's every bit, he calls it a secular Eucharist, is what he calls it. And I think he's on to something here. And the thing is, it's not, this is not just some intellectual propaganda here. Because nobody thinks their way into consumerism. You don't have to. Rather, they teach you these secular liturgies that market and recruit and captivate our our imaginations. Let, Let me just put another picture up here. Okay, the people now that are building these stadiums, $5 billion for that one, that produce movies, uh, that build malls, that design our cell phones, that market them. You know, if you, you, you listen to these people, they, and I mean this in a nice sense, they don't really, they're not going after what you think. They don't really care what you think. What they're, what they're after, they, they're, they're after what you love, what you love. And think about that, that that picture up there on the left, the guy holding the iPhone coming out there, buying his iPhone. Think about the iPhone. The people at Apple don't want you just to use your iPhone, do they? They want you to love it. (laughs) Right? And the thing is, I don't have to make an argument here. You go go to any college campus... Go to, go, to, go, to the, go to Bluffton High this week. I've dropped my daughter off. I watch her go in the morning time. People are not out there talking to one another. You know what they're doing? They're like this. And by the way, this is not just young people. This is everybody. This, and the reason why is, think about this. I know this is true with me. When I get a new iPhone and I open up, I feel like it's a religious experience, does it not? The box is beautiful. The case is beautiful. And the why is that? They, the reason why is they are creating, they're creating something that's beautiful. And the reason why God made us to be attracted to beauty. He made us this way. And it, it captures our imaginations of our longings, of our loves. That's what I'm talking about here. And what is the longing about? The longing has always been about getting back to where all that beauty comes from. It's getting back to the Garden of Eden. It's, it's, it's longing to get to that celestial city, the city of God. So whether we are aware of it or not, we are always going to seek some version of this. And I am not trying to be overly scary here and be the church lady here, okay, from Saturday Night Live. That dates me a little bit. But the devil loves using secular liturgy to pull us out of the light and drag us into the shadows. And Jamie Smith, I think, very persuasively argues here 
he says the church continues to make this mistake. We erroneously believe if we can just give people more information, if I can just give you more knowledge, then we won't be drawn to those things. And he says, think about this. Um, I, don't, I don't need to tell you another verse in the Bible to tell you you shouldn't cheat on your spouse. You're not going to suddenly say all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I didn't understand the first hundred verses, but now that last one I do. We don't need to, I don't need to give you more knowledge. You shouldn't backstab people. I don't need to tell you you shouldn't run away in battle. I shouldn't tell you that, uh, I have to tell you over and over again, we shouldn't, you know, betray people at work. Why is it, he says, the reason why is we're drawn to something else we think is more beautiful. And so we're not just defined by what we know, which is the reason why, by the way, Jesus says, love God. He didn't say just love God with all your mind. Love God with your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. It is so much more than just what we think. So we are what we love, but we also we love what we worship. And therefore, we, we need to recognize we might not always love what we think. We might not always love what we know. So I guess what I'm saying to you is the same way we can't think our way out of uh, consumerism I mean, we can't think our way until we can't think our way out of it. Which brings me to this last point, and that is the solution. I just want to be brief about this. Augustine, who I, in my opinion, is the most influential Christian outside of someone in the Bible in human history. Uh, he, he said, and I think he's right on this, you, can never, you cannot argue people into the kingdom of God. Someone can have complete knowledge and you cannot argue. The, what draws people to, this, to the kingdom of God is by seeing the beauty of God. When they see the supremacy of how much more beautiful he is than everything else, they're going to be drawn to that. Because we're made to long and seek after beauty. And whether we're subconsciously aware of it or not, this is where I think what we do here on a Sunday morning, what we do on the other campuses, what we do in the chapel here, why I think this is so incredibly important, and I mean this. To me, one of the most remarkable things in the history of mankind, um, one of the most remarkable results of Christian liturgy is we are one of the few places in all of civilization that we will come here on a Sunday morning gathered here together, corporately, and, and come and admitting together we're screwed up. We cannot make it without God. We need God. We, we, we often will recite ancient creeds. We'll pray prayers of confession. We'll say these things that I'm telling you, nobody else, nobody's saying confessions of sin. Nobody's reciting. Nobody's singing these songs in SoFi Stadium today. They're not quoting this at the Apple store. But we are. And why is that? Because when we come to the Lord's table, for example, here, we are hearing the story again and again, the same story you've heard over and over and over again, again and again, that he came to live the life we should have lived. He died the death we deserve. And by doing this over and over and over again, Jamie Smith says we are retraining and reorienting our longings and our loves and our passions back to the light. Because when we look to the light, there's no darkness that can overcome that. So we are what we love, and we, we, we repent of that many times. 
by also knowing sometimes we don't always love what we think. But, and this is, it's through the gift of the Holy Spirit that we can begin to retrain and reorient our lives. And so what I'm saying to you is what we're doing here on this Sunday morning is re, it's, it's heart-shaping practices again and again and again of getting back to what is important. Getting back to what truly, as Jamie Smith says, is a counter-liturgy to the cultural liturgies. In a way, the gospel just kind of gets implanted into our bones. It, 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 it seeps into our imaginations. I will say this. I'll give you an example. I was just told this about a week and a half ago. One of the college kids I'm kind of close to, um, her mother was telling me about this. I was not here for Thanksgiving. She was saying she had come back from Thanksgiving. She was at the, I guess it was at the store campus. And she was at the at 10 o'clock service. And she goes to kind of a non-denominational church where she is. And she came back. And there's, a, there's an ancient prayer by Thomas Cramner that's, gosh, it's a thousand years old. He translated it from Latin. And it's this prayer that I often pray, Almighty God, we come to you with our hearts open. Some of you remember this. We come to you with our desires known. We come to you knowing there are no secrets. So cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit that each one of us here could perfectly love you. We're saying this together. And we perfectly love you and, and wordly magnify your name. She said, my 21-year-old daughter started crying when she heard these. And when she came up to kneel at the altar rail and she said, what's going on? And she said, I finally did not get it until this Sunday. And I've grown up hearing this year after year after year. What is that? That's retraining and reorienting what is truly important, what we're truly after here. And what I want you to know this morning is, and it's, it's, worship is not us showing God something. It's God doing a work in us. And which means, by the way, let me say this. I think this is great comfort what I'm going to tell you next. You can show up here Okay, it's just about showing up. You can show up here in a bad mood. You can show up tired. You can show up here not wanting to completely be here. You can show up here not being an extrovert for Jesus, okay? And God can still begin to do a work on you if you show up again and again and again and again. It's having a bigger idea of who God is, a bigger vision of God, that the more we're around God, the more we're in God, the more we're listening to God. Let me put the verse up here again. The light shines in the darkness, okay, and the beauty of God shines in the darkness. And because he is so beautiful, because his light is so great, darkness can never overcome it. There's always light for those who seek after it. And so bringing it back to Augustine, who said it comes down to just two things. All these things over there that we think we have to have, these, we think these things that will fill our longings, our passions, our loves, and Jesus Christ. And he said, hold them up to one another and continue to ask yourself the question, which is more beautiful? Let's pray. O Lord of heaven, hear us now. Open our blind eyes. Unlock our deafness. 
breathe life into our souls once again, that we might see this morning the supremacy of your beauty. And that we, Lord, once again, this day, as we sing song, as we pray prayers, we could look full in your wonderful face. In all the things in this earth would grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your beauty and your grace. It's for your glory and your beauty and your grace we pray these things. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.